All right. Good evening. Um, it is doggone cold here today. I heard it was hot here last week. If somebody could turn the heat back up, that would be good. Um, and I know the standard line is, yeah, but you guys are from Minnesota. You should know cold, but there's a couple factors in that. Number one, we're coming from the middle of our summer, which is very hot. So my body's adjusted to the summer and we get thrown back into this and it's unpleasant. And then, which is why I'm keeping my coat and hat on during this. Um, and then number two, here's why I think your winters are worse than ours. Yeah, I can get to 35 or 40 below and a bunch of snow where we live, but we have heat in our buildings. <laughs> and you can go and get warm at some point during the day. Here you're just going to be cold all day long. And it just is what it is. Um, and it, it's a cutting cold here, by the way. It's like, it's a nasty cold. So, uh, I get it. You guys are, you're not wimps. All right. So, what? No, no. And in fact, it's funny because whenever people hear, you know, oh, you're going to Africa again. Oh, well, take your shorts. I'm sure it's going to be hot. It's like, no, no. <laughs> No, every place is not the Congo um, or Nigeria. So, um, But it's funny because just a couple months ago, I was in Nigeria and we did a teaching day on one of the Saturdays. We were there all week, but we did a teaching day and it was about 38 degrees and we were in a room much bigger. There was several hundred people, but it was kind of like this. And there was no air conditioning, no nothing. And so by the end of the day, it was like eight hours. I was literally, my shirt was just completely soaking wet. Um, so this is the other extreme to that. So, amen. Um, we are going to jump in. Uh, it's been kind of a unique uh, ride the last couple of years. You know, uh, we've been coming here, like Neil said, for this 11th year now. Um, been teaching uh, around the United States and in the Midwest and wherever and uh, now Africa, but been teaching since 2004. Um, but the last couple years have really been focused, probably 80% of what we've done is being invited into churches and speaking on uh, culture, race, and kingdom. And uh, it's... You know, it's a it's a topic that uh, has been at the forefront of American society and churches. And uh, in the last couple years, we had a presidential election. I don't know if you heard that was a little bit interesting and it sort of kicked back up the topic. Uh, and so uh, it, it keeps me busy. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's interesting. I, through the course of this, I, I've continued to read and study this topic, and I've discovered that, you know, throughout the history, at least in the United States, of the last couple hundred years, um, and, and let me just side note real quick and say this. A lot of the examples and things that I will give tonight um, will be from the United States. It's not because I'm, you know, uh, nationalistic or I only care about the United States. But I just feel like that's a more respectful way to handle it than for me to come into another country and try to tell you about your history and your culture. Uh, I'll tell you my examples, and then you can do the appropriate sort of connections uh, that you understand. And so I, I don't want to come in like, let me tell you about South Africa. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, but in the history of the United States, there have been multiracial Christian movements uh, for the past couple hundred years. But there's kind of a, a common theme to those multiracial churches and movements that, that take place. And that is they go strong for about 30 or 40 years. And then if they don't make some significant effort and choices, and we'll talk about what those are as we go on tonight, they crumble pretty quickly and go back to segregated ethnic and racial sort of existences. And so our movement is right in that range of age. And so, yes, we're very proud of what God has done in being a multiracial church and multi-tribal and multi-ethnic around the world. 
but there's some strain of age that's going on and some things that we have to recognize and some work uh, that we have to do. Because God has called us to be, the, our mission, the gospel mission that we have is to gather the nations, no doubt. But the task within that that we see, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, is uh, we have a task in that, that if we neglect it, we can endanger the very mission that we've been given. Okay? Um, there's a fairly recent picture of our family. Elijah hates that picture. He's been, he's asked me to remove it. But here's the problem. Anytime I take a family picture and put it up on a slide, somebody in the family has an issue with the picture and complains. And so that just is what it's going to be. Um, next to my creature there is our nephew, Javen. He's 18. He now, he's become ours and he lives with us and we can't get rid of him. Um, and so he really wanted to come on this trip, but I would not do that to you all. Um, because he's funny, but he's a handful. Uh, Paviel's in the middle. He's 23 now. Um, you know, it's been fun to watch you all grow up. He was 12, I think, the first time he came here. Um, and then uh, a lot, first time we came here, Elijah didn't even get to come because he was four years old and he was too little. Um, and he's 15 now. So that's uh, that's the family. So... Um, and he does keep growing. If anyone wants to chip in for pants, uh, we've always got to buy him new pants. So um, I'm going to skip right to this one. Um, one, of the, one of the issues is in the, in the church, you know, in the world, there's certainly conflict, right? But we can have conflicts in the church, too, right? Shock of all shocks. And some of them are interesting. Like one, I, I'll go back to this one. Uh, real quick, we have a team camp that takes place uh, in the in the Midwest a lot. Most of the regions have team camp. I know you guys do team camp. Um, the swamp now, right? Is that right? The kids go to the swamp. Youth camp, not the swamp. Okay. Okay. No swamp. That's right, which I was just there for a week teaching and training them. So, but there are swamps around the world, but now it's just, no. That's what they told me in Georgia. So I, all right, I'm not going to get on Karin's bad side. So you have youth camp here. But one of the things is, uh, I, I do teen camp every year. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, the kids will get their cabin assignments and they'll go down and they'll they'll go to their cabin. And I'll walk in and I'll see this cabin full of teen boys. There's one that I do every year called Old Chapel and it houses 54 teen boys at one time. And so as you can imagine, you get 54 boys in one cabin at camp. It's totally orderly and they follow all the rules and... um, (laughs) You know, they're told to go down there, find a bag, put their stuff neatly under the bed, and get ready for their swim tests. But you go down, and it's none of that. There's, like, wrestling matches happening. Guys are jumping off bunk beds on each other. They're throwing mattresses around. None of the bags have been put away. And a, a young team, a young campus counselor will come in who's just been trained. you got to keep those kids in line during the week, especially early, because if you know they get out of hand, it's hard to bring them back in. So he'll walk in and he'll see this and he'll be like, OK, I got to be tough on these guys. And he'll be like, guys, you need to follow the rules. Grab your stuff. Get under the beds. Go now. Move. Stop messing around. And I've noticed two. There tends to be two very distinct responses. And it it tends to fall, not perfectly, but it tends to fall along racial lines. The white kids will hear that and go, oh, sorry, and grab their stuff and throw it and stand like this. And then you'll have black kids from around and they'll be like, yo, who are you talking to? (laughs) Now, there's a challenge here going on to his authority. So the guy will come and be like, listen. You, do not challenge my authority. Do what I said. You will not disrespect me in my cabin. Move. When you are given instruction, go. And these kids will be like, who do you think you are? I don't know you like that, dude. Back up. Now, you have a conflict there. 
And those sorts of conflicts continue throughout the week. This is church camp. But by Wednesday or Thursday, you have these kids who have had these conflicts, and it's very easy for them to go, I know what the problem is here. That dude is racist. He doesn't like me because our skin color or our race. And if the counselor were to hear that, he would be devastated. Right? Because the reality is what you see here is it's a conflict, but is it a racial conflict? You see, when I grew up, the culture I grew up in was very much about you you just respected authority because it was authority. There was an achieved status to it. If somebody's in authority, that's it. You listen to them. My dad used to have this saying, when I say jump, you say, you would think so. But his saying was actually, when I say jump, you say, when can I come down, sir? (laughs) Now, my wife grew up in a different culture. A culture where simply trusting people in position of authority was often abused and it didn't go well. And so you were taught what's called ascribed authority. Somebody had to earn respect and trust in order for you to grant them the the submission to authority. That's how she was trained in her culture. And so what you see there is examples of that where some people are achieved authority and some are ascribed authority and they're very different cultures from different cultural backgrounds and it makes sense in each culture. But when you have those two come together and these kids do not understand that and someone comes at them, you have actually what's a cultural clash. There are other cultural clashes and they don't all have to be racial or ethnic. You have two brothers who get into a discipling relationship. And let's say it's Kuda and I. And Kuda comes from a very direct spoken culture. You just say it like it is. I I call what it is and I, I tell you straightforward. And if you're in sin, you're in sin. And I don't try to mince around it. I just get right to the point. I'm from an indirect culture, which I am. You don't say things directly. That would be to lose face. It would be a little rude. You sort of drop hints and throw things out there and... You know, that kind of thing. That was my wife and I when we got married. And I spent 10 years thinking my Cresha was incredibly rude because she would just ask me when she wanted something. She'd be like, will you run my back? I'd be like, that's so rude. You don't, you've now socially obligated me to rub your back. Like, I have to say yes. The proper way to do it is to be like, oh, my back is killing me today, boy. Now, that's a proper social request, right? Now, I put it out there. You can either accept or deny the request. So, we had this problem. But she had brothers in a discipling relationship, and so we sit down, and Kuda just says something directly to me, thinking he's being loving and respectful, and I take it in a very different way, and I walk away going, I can't be in a relationship with him anymore. He is unloving and harsh. And we think it's a spiritual conflict, and it's actually a cultural conflict. I'm convinced that two-thirds or three-quarters of the conflict in the church are actually cultural conflicts that we simply don't understand or recognize as such. There's different ways to handle it. One of the questions right at the beginning is why talk about culture and race? Um, you know, some people are like, why? Those are, those are dangerous topics. Those are, you can, stir up divisiveness if you get into those topics. Well, imagine we have a married couple. I'm going to... I feel like I pick on you every year, right? You're pointing at them? I'm going to pick on you. Let's say Ruth came to Bruce and said, you know, uh, there's some things in our marriage I'd like to talk through. There's some things we need to talk about. And Bruce said, no, woman, let me tell you what. The Bible says... The two have become one flesh. We are one. We are united. We are good. And we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to have your divisive, let's have a talk sort of conversations. We are going to move on and enjoy the goodness of our oneness in Christ. How would that go for him? (laughs) Not very well. Right? 
that's just, that's not how it works. You don't remain united by not talking about things. The reality is healthy families talk. Now, it's God's plan. Like I said, it is God's plan to gather the nations. That is the gospel. He told Abraham, you will be, you will be the one father of many nations. Well, how is that going to work? Isaiah looks forward to the time when the nations will come together as one and stream to the mountain of the Lord. Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. Bring them in. Paul said, this is the mystery of Christ as the races come together as one family. Revelation shows this perfect picture of God's people, of every tribe and language and people group and nation praising God. This is God's plan. And so we've got to understand that. This is what God is doing. This is what makes us unique as a movement. He is gathering the nations. It's been God's mission and dream from the very beginning. But here's the reality. That is more difficult. It would be much easier to go to a church of people just like you. With common heritage. Common ethnicity, common culture, common language, common songs. We can, we can do it our way and there will always be that pull. But you've got to understand that the mystery of Christ is that we resist that pull and say, no, we must do this because this is what God wants. He wants to bring us together as a family and it will be more difficult. The more diverse a group is, the harder it is, the more challenging it is. But if we know why we're doing it, we can persevere in it. We, I I think one of the strengths of our movement is that we are the gathering of the nations. And we don't want to ignore that and turn a strength into a weakness. Because this is what the gospel is about. Revelation, with your blood was purchased every people from every tribe, language, people, group, and nation. Now, what is culture? Let's talk about culture a little bit, because I'm convinced that a big part of what keeps people groups separated and at each other's throat in the world today is not so much skin color. Now, that's historically been the issue, but why we don't really tend to like each other now, why we separate and war and all these things has to do with culture. I don't like the way that group of people acts and does things. It's weird. It's wrong. It's different. It's strange. Uh, uh, it makes no sense. Whatever it is, we, we don't want to be around people that do things differently than we would prefer to do them. And that's culture. Okay? Culture is a socially learned system of knowledge and behavioral patterns shared by a certain group of people. In other words... It's a way of life which a particular group of people adhere to. Culture is, and here's the word, you ready for it? Culture is what is normal to you. And that's the power of culture. Nobody really teaches you culture. They don't have culture class in school. You just breathe it in. And it's life, and it's what's normal, and it determines all kinds of things. How do you dress? That's culture. What sort of foods do you eat? You pick that up from the culture. Is it respectful to look somebody directly in the eye when you're talking to them, or should you look down a little bit? Which is respectful, which is disrespectful? How close should you stand to them? I've been in some countries where I'm talking to people, and they come up, and they're like this, talking to me, and you're like... And then they move forward, and you're like this, and they move forward. The first time, I think I was in Zimbabwe, and I was walking with uh, another guy, and he suddenly held my hand and started talking, and I was like... (laughs) But that was totally normal, right? I know, as soon as I'm outside of the United States, when I'm in an airport, because suddenly, people are standing, like, right here up on me, in line. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you not see the blue passport book? I get a personal body space of six feet all the way around me, but people want to stay in that, That's all culture. Okay? There are two levels of culture. There's these above-the-surface things that we see that are visible and obvious. Food, clothing, music, greetings, eye contact, some of that basic stuff. And if we mix at this level, we start to think, oh, yeah, we're multicultural. 
We get it. Now, some churches don't even always do this very well, although I think the South African churches really do it amazingly well. And if you think, man, we don't mix our cultures very well, come to the United States and some of those churches and you'll feel a lot better about yourselves. Um, you'd be like, oh, hey, we're, we're getting this down pretty good. But there's also this subjective below the surface level. The areas of culture that are much deeper, that we often are unaware of, that remain invisible. Uh, expectations that we have, values, attitudes, how do we do authority, what are gender roles, what are concepts of truth, family, respect, respectfulness. You all know, those of you that know my wife know that we're about as different culturally as you could possibly be. We have very different views of things like even what family is. To me, I came into our marriage thinking family is now me, you, and our kids. To her, family is like everybody she ever done met. Her family's massive. She'll come in and be like, we have to go to a funeral this weekend. Of who? Well, my granddaddy's sisters, cousins, brothers, something or other. And I'm like, how is that even family? I don't even know these people. And she's like, we are going to this funeral. It's family. We have all these clashes, right? Uh, we, we recently, we were, uh, we were, um, what do you call it? We were, we were helping, the, the ideas just went out of my mind. When somebody's ready to get married and you're, you're pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling. You wouldn't, well, I left that way too wide open, wouldn't I? Didn't I? We were pre-marriage counseling this couple. Now, it was, it was a, a very strong African-American sister from down south and a brother who had just recently moved from and converted in the United States but grown up in Zimbabwe. And they were getting ready to get married. And one of the things I said is, have you all talked about what the role of a wife is? Uh, and they were like, no. I was like, you better have that conversation. <laughs> Because there's going to be some different cultural expectations going on there. You know what I mean? That suddenly kick in after you say, I do. And then say, well, this is what a wife does. No, she don't. <laughs> These are strong things. Now, you, you might wonder why that picture, this is usually where my Cretia shares, and now you're not going to know what that has to do with. But it's a, it's a long story that she tells. Um, and those are the Isley brothers, if you were wondering. Um, if you don't know, go YouTube them. You'll find out. Great music. Um, so the mission is to gather the nations. But this is a passage, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, just the highlighted part here. Paul sums it up and he says, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. This is the task within the mission that we've been given. If we do not embrace this as our mantra, we will eventually break down the mission that God has given us to gather the nations. Because eventually, if you don't pay attention to culture, one culture will dominate. And it will start to say, what, the church doesn't have a culture? We'll ask the other groups. And after a while, it will start to wear thin and they'll start to go, why do we have to be the ones that always have to do it differently? Always have to change. Always have to. And even if, you know, and some groups will say, oh, no, we sing all kinds of music. We sing Koza and Zulu and Afrikaans and English. And yeah, it's so much deeper than that. That's great. That's fantastic. But there's so much deeper than that. And one of the things in this one of the aspects of becoming all things to all people is that it will demand that we are constantly working and uncomfortable a little bit. We're learning. We're doing things differently. And if we're all going after it, it starts to work. But if, if some of us neglect it, it becomes a problem. One of the good news is, one of the pieces of good news in, in this uh, area is that the primary cause of conflict and trouble in the New Testament church was race, culture, and ethnicity. 
It's in almost every book of the New Testament. It is everywhere in the New Testament. Um, books like, or you, well, we'll get to the books, but you have, you have issues. Think of Acts, the Hebraic Jews versus the Hellenic Jews. Acts 6, that's one of the first conflicts in the church. Uh, the letter Paul writes to Galatia is because there's a conflict between the Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews are sort of abusing the Gentiles. He writes an almost mirror image book to the Romans because now the Gentiles are sort of abusing the Jews. But you have these cultural conflicts. You have cultural conflicts in Corinth and Ephesus and on and on in the New Testament. Entire books were written as cross-cultural mission training to these churches. This is how you get along. And Paul says it's, it's an absolute must And one of the things I think Paul, if he could address us today is, don't you dare fall back on this universal body of Christ thing and say all races are saved in Christ, but it's okay to have a black church or a white church or this kind of church or that kind of church. He says, no, the mystery of Christ must be on display in Ephesus and in Galatia and in Corinth. And if you have a Gentile church and a Jewish church, you have failed to be the mission. You have to have it on display. Um, the, there's three aspects of culture here I just want to mention real quick when it comes to the biblical principles. Number one, there are some aspects of culture and beliefs and practices that must be rejected when entering into Christ. Now, I can give an example. One of the examples from... Uh, maybe uh, Eastern Africa, but, you know, other places in the world, too, is that there's kind of a, a culture where fathers are distant from their children. That's kind of the mother's job, right? Fathers don't be engaged. Well, you, you examine it when you come into Christ and say, does that match up with biblical principles? Absolutely not. That part of the culture must go. It's got to be changed. It does not fit into Christ. And so Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Some things have to change. Number two, some aspects of culture must be transformed to embrace the kingdom. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's, there's some, some things we reject. There's some aspects of culture where we're creating a new culture in Christ. And churches have a culture, Right? That can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. One of the things we all know, like in our family of churches, what's one of the clearest indicators that you're in one of our churches around the world? You walk in that door, you finna get hugged. <laughs> right? That's just what's going to happen. That's culture. And it's so weird because I go to some of these minister meetings in our uh, in our town now, like once a month. And I'll walk in and these other ministers will be like, how are you doing? And it feels so foreign. It's like, you know, we got a hug. Three, we seek to appreciate and embrace one another's cultural expressions and values. This is what Paul is talking about here. Okay? Uh, this is not about the world sort of thing of identity politics and division. This is about us embracing one another and learning from one another and making everyone feel like, yeah, you're welcome in the body of Christ. But I guarantee you this idea of, well, let's do, we shouldn't have to talk about that. You should just follow the Bible. Paul didn't believe that. Paul was talking about it constantly and said, man, if we're going to be this, we have to pay attention to this and make people show that they are welcome and that they, you know, we want to include their way of doing things as well, because one of the false think ways of thinking we tend to fall into is that our way is the way instead of recognizing that it is a way. Okay? And if we don't recognize that, then I will always force you to do it my way. And I'll explain that more in a second. It's kind of counterintuitive, though, because the way to destroy categories of division is to focus on them. Sometimes we tend to want to go, well, I don't want to focus on it because then we'll, we'll bring up possible reasons to divide. But if you don't talk about it, it's never going to change. To, to, to get rid of it, you've got to face it head on from a biblical perspective. 
Now, let's talk about dominant and non-dominant cultures. When you have multiple cultures that come in to a group, the reality is the tendency, you have to work very, very hard to have truly equal cultures. Typically, there will be a dominant culture. That's not a bad thing unless you just ignore it, right? Um, But here are some characteristics. Dominant cultures tend to be unaware of their own culture. The first time we started talking about this in our church in Minneapolis, uh, one of the responses was, we don't have a culture in this church. We're not a white cultured church, really. Go to an all-black church and tell me it's just exactly the same. (laughs) We did. We were multiracial. And you see that in a lot of our churches, but not necessarily multicultural. You can be multiracial and not be multicultural. And you very subtly, because groups, that's one of the privileges of being the dominant culture, you're unaware of your own culture. And so you very unintentionally oftentimes, but subtly send the message, you are welcome here as long as you do it our way. Non-dominant groups are typically very aware of their own cultural because to operate within the dominant culture, you got to know your own culture and the other groups, right? And so I remember when we were first married, my wife, we would go to her family and she would be like this person I had not seen before. And, and then we'd go to my family and all of a sudden she would fit right in with my family. She'd be like, oh, hey, Betty, how you doing? And she'd get along with everyone. And then we would, but when we would go to her family, I'd be so uncomfortable. I would just sit there and be like, I don't know how to conversate with these people. I don't know. Like they, their sense of humor makes no sense to me. The things they talk about makes no sense. It was totally a foreign culture to me, but she could move in and out seamlessly, right? Non-dominant groups tend to be more adept at adopting to the dominant group's uh, norms, okay? These are just typical characteristics. Um, dominant groups tend to ascribe behavior of an individual as characteristic of the whole group, well, they, they look at behavior, especially aberrant behavior, within their own group as an unfortunate anomaly. Right? So if someone from the other group does something bad, they go, what's wrong with those people? But if somebody in their group does something bad, they go, oh, what a bad egg. Right? And, and that happens in groups. Dominant groups tend to be more unfamiliar with the non-dominant group, so they, bec- they can become more easily upset and offended by the behavior of the non-dominant group. When it's suddenly put in their lap, they're like, what's wrong with that? And they get angry, they get upset, they get, you know, whatever. And, and that can happen in the church, too, if we're not aware of it. If these things are not recognized, and I'm not trying to make like, oh, the dominant group is the bad group of people. That's not what I'm doing. And I'm not trying to say non-dominant groups are always innocent and never have problems because sometimes they can be impatient or sometimes non-dominant groups can be just awful to other non-dominant groups. But the reality is if this is not recognized, it can lead to a growing but quiet discontent on the part of the non-dominant group. Tired of always having to do it someone else's way. I think in the church we want to be a place where everyone feels welcome and no one feels at home. Now, that's interesting because you say, wait, we're supposed to be a family, right? Well, this is a different metaphor here. But at home, everything goes your way. At least if you're a single brother. <laughs> when you're married, that, that reality ends, right? Now you've got a culture clash going on. But a, a church, especially a church of all nations is never going to be where everything is to your liking. That It's not going to be that way. But I, I have rather shocking news. It's not about you. I know that's tough to grasp in first, you know, 21st century, but it's not about me. It's about God's mission to gather the nations. And my task 
is to be all things to all people. And that means I'm going to have to do some hard work. And be uncomfortable. By its very nature, it's uncomfortable. We see the world through our own glasses, through our own perspective. We need to be inclusive. We need to talk to one another. We can't just assume we know what will make other people happy. You you will not know unless their perspective is heard and voiced. We had a a leadership meeting. We talked about this last night. But the analogy or the, the whatever it is. The, the story works here as well, the illustration, in that um, we had a meeting not too long ago in the Minneapolis church, and it just so happened that none of the women were present that night, and it was just men. And so we were talking about this topic, and we came up and we said, let's consider all the angles, and let's consider what the ladies would think and like here, and talk it through. And we came up with this brilliant plan. It was great, and one of the brothers typed it up, and we sent it out the next morning, and we were feeling very proud of ourselves. And I walked into our bedroom and my wife was laying there in the bed reading her phone. And she goes, what the heck is this? <laughs> and I was like, what? She goes, this plan that was sent out. And right in that moment, my phone rang and I looked down and it was our evangelist's wife. And so I answered the phone. I said, hello. And she goes, what was with that plan you guys sent out last night? And I was like... Why are you all calling me? I'm not even in charge of this. But, and I was like, no, we considered the women's perspective. And they're like, not very well. But see, you can't consider it if their voice is not being heard. Right? So that's, that's a big element. One of the dangers here is ethnocentrism, which is the tendency to view the behaviors and beliefs of your group as the norm and those of other groups as inferior or wrong or what have you. That's, that's a tendency that we all have. I can't tell you how many times, and I say this when she's with me too, usually my creature is with me, so she knows I'm saying this, but I can't tell you how many times she's walked in the house after church and been like, I tell you what, I don't understand white people, I don't know what y'all are doing, I don't, and I'm like, what's the matter? And she's like, oh, they just, say what you mean, say what you mean. And I'm like, okay, what do they say? And she'll tell me, I said, okay, when white people say that, this is what they mean. And she's like, and she, but then her response, and it's, it's somewhat joking, but she'll be like, it's just wrong. White people don't make sense. It's wrong. And I'm like, my Krisha, we literally go and lecture around the world on culture and ethnocentrism, and you're being ethnocentric. And she's like, no, I'm just being right. <laughs> Multiculturalism is not about assimilation. It's not about you become like us and then you can fit in. True multiculturalism is about accommodation. We're all equal here. Let's all share our culture. Let's not try to dominate. But we have to be aware of our own culture to be able to do that. We have to ask these questions. Do you you feel like... And it's uncomfortable sometimes. You've got to be willing... One of the things I said the other day is somebody asked me about being a teacher, and I said, you know, to be a teacher, I think you have to embrace the idea of being wrong. You have to actually start to enjoy. There's a humility to being wrong, because when you find out you're wrong, that's how you grow and start to do things better. And so I think we have to embrace the idea that maybe we don't do things perfectly as Christians in a church and we can do them better. We start asking people, you know, are we cultural dominance in this church? And oh, yeah, we don't need to be defensive about it. Amen. Well, let's talk about how we can do things differently and grow and, and be different in a way. We can clash over all sorts of things. Music and worship, communication styles, views of time, all these other things. Power distance, collective versus individual, family structure, weddings and funerals. Like I said, in my wife's family, you get, anybody you've ever even met that looked at your family, their family, and we're going to that wedding and that funeral. And, and, and me, culturally, it's like, I wouldn't even want other people to go. Like if my mom died, like why would I ask disciples to come to my mom's funeral? They don't know her. That's You know what I mean? That's my mindset. But people can get their feelings hurt. Right? Because, you know, if if my wife's mother died and had a funeral and the disciples didn't show up, she would be hurt. 
If they didn't show up at my mom's funeral, I'd be like, great, less people to feed. Let's move on. (laughs) Now this one, I know this is going to hit y'all. I know this example is going to hit y'all. There are two main cultural views of time. One is monochronic. Monochronic people tend to see time as a linear event. Time is here, and then it's gone. You don't want to waste it. Time is money. Time's a wasting. Let's go. We need to start on time. This is how it is. Don't interrupt my schedule. Don't change the schedule. There's a time and place for everything. Let's go. I'll let you guess whether that's me or my wife. Monochronic. Then you have cultures that are polychronic. Now this is not, don't, if you just are late for everything, don't sit there and go, oh, I'm just polychronic. <laughs> but polychronic cultures see time as cyclical. There's plenty of time. There's always tomorrow. Why are you rushing? You can do multiple activities at a time. Distractions and interruptions, not a problem. Plans can be changed. It's no big deal. And why would you ever change, worry about time when there's fellowship to be had? You can see this on display every Sunday afternoon at about 11.50 p.m. when the Minneapolis-St. Paul Church of Christ is let out and I'm like, are we going now? And my wife is sitting there on her goodbye tour. She's made t-shirts, you know, 2018 goodbye tour at church and is hitting all these dates and venues. And I'm like, can we just, can we get times? We need to be at lunch at 12 o'clock. And she'll be like, why? <laughs> because that's when we have lunch. This is. You know, and even our, you, you see our, our family gatherings, when we would go for holidays, we would go to Christmas Eve party at my parents' house. The party starts at 4. Food is served at 4.15. <laughs> Children's activities at 5. <laughs> Gifts are open at 5.30. The reading of the night before Christmas is at 6, and everybody's done and home by 6.30. We'd go to Thanksgiving parties at her family's house for a Thanksgiving lunch. Lunch. Show up at 11 o'clock. Nobody's even there yet. (laughs) By 1 o'clock, people are starting to roll in. By 2 o'clock, they're starting to throw food out. I'm getting a little worried at this point. I'm going in the kitchen at 4.30, 5 o'clock. I'm so hungry. When are we going to eat? And she's like, well... Juicy and them still got to run in the store and get some greens and with the, and I'm like, what? And it's like seven o'clock now, but here's where it starts to get problematic is because I'll be like, can we just go? And she will look and be like, do you not like my family? And I'm thinking I'd like them a lot more if they would feed us at some point. Now, how many of you would say, I think I tend to be monochronic? Okay. How many of you would say polychronic? Oh, good luck being family together. Church starts at 9.30, right, on Sunday mornings? Ish. But look, even there, it was about 50-50. Monochronic, polychronic. And you start to have people go, they just do not value my time. They don't respect my time. Things like that. And they're thinking, no, this is relationship. Time is unimportant. Two very different cultural ways to view the world. And it can be a challenge. Um, for sake of time, oh, that's a fun one. Casual register and formal register, but we'll, we'll skip that one for time. That hurts, though, because it's fun. But it is challenging because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, right after he talks about being all things to all people, he says, do you not know that runners go into strict training? This is not easy. I don't want to just waste my time, though, put all this effort into being the body of Christ and then wind up blowing it up because I'm not willing to put in the work. It takes effort. It takes conversation. It takes thought. It takes changing myself. 
Being all things to all people means I am willing to examine my own comfort zones and constantly push to try to expand them to accommodate others. And when we're all doing that, it starts to work. Right? Unchecked cultural predominance or indifference starts to walk and quack like the duck of prejudice in the eyes of others. Now, do you all have that saying? I don't even know. All these years, but some sayings I don't know. Do you have that? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck? Okay, that's what I'm talking about here, right? It starts to look like prejudice after a while if the dominant group will never examine its own cultural dominance. A community life is Revelation 5 focused. That's the, you know, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. This is who we are becoming. Too many groups want to focus on who we are rather than what we are becoming, which is a cultureless group where everybody's culture is embraced. We've had, you know, we'll, we'll come here for, you know, weeks and months at a time and then we'll go back to the Midwest and be like, hey, we should sing this song, Jonana Joe. <laughs> now, in the Midwest of the United States, when, if they really cut loose during a song, you will see this. <laughs> I mean, that's just going for broke. <laughs> and then there's times, like, I've taken people... Uh, to like West Africa with me. We were just in Nigeria. And one of the things that they'll tend to do is if the, the stage is here, the front row will be like back here. And you go, why is the front row so far back? Well, they're going to need that area <laughs> once the music starts. In fact, we were just in Abidjan a couple of weeks ago and we had some folks with us. And I said, watch this. And as soon as the music starts, here come the people. And they're doing all, you know, they're cutting it loose and they're like this and I'm doing it. And they're like, you got no rhythm, white boy, but keep trying. <laughs> but then you go back to the Midwest and like, let's do, let's, let's loosen up a little. And, you know, because there are people who enjoy that. That's, that's the music of their heart. You know, music is kind of the, the language. It's, it's a heart language, you know. And, and so, and, but the response of some people would be like, oh, I'm not comfortable doing that. Why would you make me get out of my comfort zone? Why would you make me do it another way that I don't want to do it? And they never stop to think that you are just fine with making them do it your way all the time. Standing there and just singing like this. And I will even put forth the idea that, well, we'll have songs like that and they can do their thing, but I'll just stand here like this. That's not good enough either. You've just sent the signal that I will not be all things to all people. I will not go out of my comfort zone. I will not show you that you are part of my family and I'm embracing your, what you love as much as you embrace mine. Does that make sense? A cross-cultural church will value diversity. It will assess itself culturally. It will become aware of these differences. It will seek to incorporate cultural understanding into the life of the church and be willing to modify its community life. It will... Here are the values of cross-culturalness. Number one, give the benefit of the doubt to the other person. If the other person does something that makes no sense to you, assume that it makes sense in their culture. People don't just do things that are pointless. It makes sense to them. So look for what the action means in their culture. That's what I've learned with my wife. She would do things that would seem really rude, but then I would find out in her culture it's respectful. So now I've learned to interpret that. It still feels rude when she does certain things. It just does. When she comes up and goes, will you scratch my back? It's like... But then I can interpret and go, she's being respectful, she's being respectful, she's being respectful. And you know, and then I'd be like, wow, my neck hurts today. And she, she's walking away just going, you know, well, if you want something, ask for it. 
And I'm like, okay, that makes sense in her culture. (laughs) Number three, allow each other to make mistakes. Be sensitive, don't be so sensitive. In other words, try to be sensitive to others, but try not to be so sensitive about yourself. And when we're all doing that, it starts to work. Right? Don't assume that your point of view is correct or normal. We, but do understand, you've got to put in work. It's hard to learn other cultural perspectives. I've seen that in the, the career of Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah is bitingly brilliant when he talks about South African culture and things. When he comes to the United States, he's still funny but not nearly as insightful and brilliant because he does not understand the culture in the same way that he does the South African culture. He's learning it, right? So it it takes time, but don't assume that your point of view is correct. Be willing to learn. Be proactive. Don't wait for something to come up. Go learn. And people say, well, how do I start? Just ask questions. Start talking to other people. And, And you'll start... Learning, finding, get out of your comfort zone. Why do you do that? You know? So that's number eight. Get out of your comfort zone. It's demanded by be all things to all people. And number nine, relax. We don't have to get all tight. We're family. Let's have fun with it. My wife and I almost every day will have some sort of bump over some cultural thing and we'll just laugh and be like, ha, ah, culture got us again. <laughs> If only you were raised in the best culture, which is mine. We'll end this session with five important questions from culture. Number one, what are my cultural beliefs and behaviors? I've got to know myself to be able to start this journey. Number two, does the Bible call me to a new way of thinking about my culture? Number three, what are your cultural beliefs and behaviors? And does the Bible, number four, does the Bible call me to a new way of thinking about your culture? Notice it doesn't say, does the Bible call you to a new way of thinking about your culture? That's for you to work out. My job is, do I need to change my view towards you or your culture? And number five, the most important question I think we can ask here is, what did you mean by that? When somebody does something that's hurtful or offensive or seems weird, just go, what did you mean by that? And we've got to be a community where that question becomes okay and it's not hurtful. What did you mean by that? Oh, I meant to be respectful. Oh, it felt really rude and weird. (laughs) And to be say, well, of course, that's going to happen. And to actually view that as a victory and not as something to be defensive about. or oh no, That's a victory when we discover one of those things. We are becoming more of who God wants us to be. So just to summarize here, Jesus commanded us to gather the nations. God's family will consist of people of every tribe, language, people, group, and nation. And we have to be willing to be all things to all people. And that's going to take work. But ultimately, love, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins and cultural faux pas. Amen? Let's go ahead and take a little break here. Um, and Neil, do you have, we've got 10 minutes for tea. All right. All right. Amen. <laughs>